Hello, my friends, and welcome to Take Me to Eternity, the podcast where I try my hardest to dissect the things coming into the church and through the world, through the Word of God, so that we can keep the good and toss out the bad. My name's Leah Fiore, and I am the host of this podcast. As you know, Resurrection Day is coming. I mean, nobody can miss the mass amounts of eggs and bunnies that we are seeing everywhere. Today, we're going to parcel through the question, should Christians celebrate Easter? Should we call it Easter or should we call it Resurrection Day? And does it even matter what we call it? Are rabbits and chicks and eggs acceptable? I know, I know, another holiday breakdown with Leah, but this is what I do. So, welcome to a place that knows all too well the struggle between flesh and spirit is real. And hang out with me as I try and compare everything against scripture so we can keep the good and toss the bad. Let's remember how blessed we are in this fallen world, why we're blessed, and who blesses us. There's so much emphasis on Easter baskets, egg hunts, and the Easter bunny. I don't know why we have a magical Easter bunny that we put into our uh, celebrations. It makes no sense to me, but we will get into that too. So often we forget that the whole reason for the season is Jesus. A friend of mine made me a shirt that says, Silly Rabbit, Easter's for Jesus. Shout out to Jessie's Girl Designs and her beautiful t-shirts. I'm actually wearing it right now. We live in a world full of distractions. I have a goal for myself and my children that I can lessen those distractions so we can remember to keep front and center the only one who really matters. Maybe you will see in this podcast the reason to look further into the things that we do when we celebrate Christ. Maybe you've already looked into them. I don't know. I don't know where you're at. It becomes idolatry when we put anything in front of God or in the place where he ought to be. So many times we don't see that as what's happening until it's too late and we've already done it. Sometimes, however, things called idolatrous are simply a neutral thing that can be used wrongly. That includes bunnies and eggs in place of Jesus crucified and him risen. We're to give glory to the Lord and not a bunny. Sometimes we think that we are not giving glory to the bunny, and in fact we are. And sometimes we can just have a bunny, and that's all it is. That's partly what we have to figure out where our intentions are. We're to give glory to the Lord and not a bunny. We should worship him and what he did for us and truthfully toss out the things that are just noise the things that take his place in our central focus. The things that muddy the waters and take our focus away can be a problem. We need to keep the main thing the main thing. Bunnies and chicks and eggs are part of God's creation, and them in and of themselves aren't pagan and shouldn't be thrown out altogether, but the focus should always be on the Lord and those just cute reminders of his handiwork. We should look at those things and praise God for them. Too often we think we need to participate in things that aren't helpful or healthy for us. Participate in worldly things so we don't look odd or our kids don't feel left out. 
We're to be set apart though, and that means looking and acting differently than the world. And we need to make sure our kids understand that it's okay to look different. It's okay to do things differently and not partake in a lot of the things that the world does. I think we take Jesus' resurrection for granted often. When we celebrate Easter, the bunny and what you get become the main focus, and we are supposed to be focused on our Savior. Our children can't wait for a bunny or the fun things, and the whole reason we say we celebrate it gets put on the back shelf. When we kind of mention it, or we talk about it a little instead of focusing primarily on it. Or we read that one storybook that mentions Jesus, mentions what he did, but it really is more about the eggs and the bunnies than it is about him. I know there's so many explanations for why we can twist to make a bunny and eggs fit into the life and death of Jesus, but what's the point? Why do we do that? Why do we need the distractions? It's still a distraction, and it can be harmful to little minds who need to be focused on God and make sure that we understand that we're not putting stumbling blocks in their way. I have to say, I love bunnies, <laughs> just not the Easter bunny. It becomes much like Santa and takes the stage when Christ should be the center. There are so many ways to justify things that take place in our hearts and minds that only God should hold, but none are ac actually acceptable. What do you think your child thinks of first when they think of Easter? That should be a question that gives us pause. What are they the most excited about? I think it's really important to emphasize the reason for celebrating Easter instead of the distractions that are generally promoted more than anything else. Though dying eggs is fun, egg hunts and baskets of goodies, they take away from the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, and I'm not telling you you shouldn't do that. I'm just saying, what's the emphasis when we do that? I looked into Christmas, Halloween, and Easter. If you haven't seen my Christmas and Halloween podcasts, you can find them on my YouTube page or most podcasting platforms, if you're interested, that is. I think it's important to know the truth and even some of the fiction that comes with our celebrations so we have answers when people ask or a settled conscience when we are opposed. We will have thought out what we are doing and why. We will be able to say with knowledge that it isn't pagan or I won't partake because dot dot dot, right? I understand all too well how hard it is when you have little kids that have been taught about the Easter Bunny, and then later you realize there is more than a small problem with it. I got really convicted about it myself, and I had to decide what to do with it for my family and myself. The question I had to ask was, do I honor God and flip my family upside down, or do I continue to do the things that now weighed really heavy on my conscience? So let's get into the history of Easter. Some people say Easter's pagan. Some say it's only connected because of the etymology of the word Easter. The term Easter is derived from an ancient English goddess who was mentioned by Monk Beebe during the 7th and 8th centuries, though it is disputed. He wrote that the Ostermonath was an English month which corresponded to April and was once named after the goddess Oster. 
Okay, I'm totally going to butcher these names, so I'm just telling you right now. Just get ready to hear some butchered names. And the celebrations were to honor Oster. We know that the months and days and such were named after pagan gods and goddesses, so it kind of makes sense. There is a woman named Marcia Montenegro, and she does a post every year about Easter not being pagan. She is a wonderful, godly woman, and she does a lot of research. She's a great source to look at if you want a slightly different view than mine. I totally respect what she has to say, too. In Greek and Latin, there's a festival referred to as Pascha, which initially denoted the famous Jewish celebrations known as the Passover, and it commemorates the exodus of the Jews from Egypt. Pascha was um, celebrated since Moses led the Israelites from Egypt. It was called the Passover. Before Jesus died on the cross, he changed the festival to a reminder of his work on the cross during the Last Supper. He fulfilled the Passover for us. He is our Passover lamb. He is our, um, our perfect sacrifice. He took the sins of the world so that we might be clothed in his righteousness. It seems that, as with most holy things, there is unholy running side by side, and we need to divorce the unholy from the holy. It seems like there could have been a true holiday, which we know there was, the Passover, and a pagan holiday that melded over the years. Unfortunately, that's what happens. I mean, you know, when we compromise a little here and we compromise a little there and we see things that look fun or interesting or we're trying to pull in the culture, um, a lot of times, you know, Christians try and pull the the culture in so that the people will accept what they're saying better. And that's not what we're supposed to be doing. Um, it unfortunately happens when we compromise and envelop pagan practices to please the culture or just please our own flesh. Does that mean, however, that we're celebrating pagan celebrations? I don't really think so. A question to ask is, who do you honor by what you do and where is your focus? What are you putting emphasis on for your children or the people around you? While there absolutely are a ton of pagan holidays that fall around the same time, that's simply because it's spring. Spring is a time to celebrate the change in the weather and new life. Historically, followers of the one true God would celebrate God's provisions for them. People celebrate in the ways they know how or see fit, so we have different ideas of what that means. Should we just call it for what it actually is as Christians? Yeah, probably so. Help to not muddy the waters. But the fact that pagans have a celebration at the same time, that in and of itself shouldn't be a reason to not celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. Easter is now a commercialized holiday, and we ought to get back to our Christian roots with it. The fact that there are pagan holidays at the same time as Easter doesn't mean all things done on that day are pagan. If someone has the same birthday as you, it does not make it not your birthday. And if you're celebrating your birthday, it doesn't mean you're celebrating theirs. We as Jesus' followers celebrate the birth of Jesus, and his birth was absolutely amazing. But his work on the cross and rising after should not be taken lightly. 
That is why when the apostles preached, they preached Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24 For indeed Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The power of salvation is in the gospel, and that is the death, atonement, and resurrection of Christ our Lord. It is the way we are saved, and it is the most important thing ever. Jesus is our Passover lamb, and we shouldn't forget that, nor should we think that how we honor him and celebrate him doesn't matter. In his death we were atoned for, and in his resurrection he defeated death. That means we'll be alive with him in eternity. Anything that takes the main focus should be discarded. It's really easy to say the main focus is him, and then go and excuse something that we deem fun and harmless, while at the same time taking what really is fun and harmless and elevating it more than it ought to be. There are myths or legends that talk about Easter from another point, things that are everything but Christian. They could very well be credible, and in fact, there are some pretty good connections to, to some of these things. We should take it seriously and at the same time prayerfully weigh what to do with it. We should be set apart from those around us, and in doing so, not compromise truth with fiction. Not muddy the waters when it comes to the worship and celebration of God. I know that an idol is nothing, and that there are no other gods, but I also know that the worship of idols is the worship of demons, and the glory should always be given to God and Him alone. I'm not saying that you bow down to the bunny, but that isn't exactly the entirety of what idolatry is. It's simply a part of what it could look like. What does it say when we've put focus on a magical bunny instead of Christ? Deuteronomy 32.21 says, They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another nor my praise to graven images. Idol, I'm going to tell you the definition now, is an image, form, or representation, usually of a man or an animal, consecrated as an object of worship. A pagan deity, idols are usually statues or images, carved out of wood or stone, or formed of metals, particularly silver or gold. An image, a person loved and honored to adoration, Anything on which we set our affections that to which we indulge an excessive and sinful attachment. An idol is anything which usurps the place of God in the hearts of his rational creatures. A representation. Genesis, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel have verses that point to a pagan annual celebration that goes as far back as Babylon. So the Bible actually talks about some of this. Are you ready for more butchered names? When you look into what this is, they say that Nimrod, the great-grandson of Noah, slept with and married his mother, Semiramis. So, 
she then becomes queen. Nimrod gets murdered and Semiramis says that Nimrod's spirit was lifted up and becomes one with the sun. He is now the sun god Baal. Then she says that she is now the queen of heaven, who was sent down to earth in an egg conceived by the moon goddess. Jeremiah 7 and 44 both mention the queen of heaven. Some make some pretty weird doctrine out of this, saying that there's a queen of heaven that is God's wife and weird stuff, but when you read it, it is talking about idolatry, and it's pretty well condemned. <laughs> Jeremiah 7.18 says, The children gather wood, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven, and they pour out drink offerings to other gods in order to spite me. In Jeremiah chapter 44, he's telling them that because they sacrifice to other gods, they are being judged for it, and will continue to be judged for it because they haven't stopped. It talks about the women sacrificing burnt offerings to the queen of heaven multiple times. If you look through the legend, Ashtaroth and Baal were being worshipped at the same time in the same places, and her name gets mixed up with Ashtaroth as well as Ostara and Ishtar. Just as there are many names for people, goddesses were no different. Different peoples had different names for each. I mean, we already know that. So as the queen of heaven, she makes her symbols eggs and bunnies. Both are a symbol for reproduction. We know Satan wants to act like he can reproduce and create when in fact he can't, and I think that's probably why there are so many symbols for reproduction in different gods and goddesses. Um, everything was made by, through, and for Jesus. Everything is the Lord's, whether they follow him or not. So apparently, Samaramis gets pregnant, and says the father is Baal. Creepy. Or Nimrod, who are both one and the same according to her. And when she gives birth, she gives birth to Tammuz. He ends up dying also, and she decides to make a celebration for him with eggs. They supposedly used eggs and painted them with blood, and you had to hide the eggs around your house and hide them so the animals wouldn't eat them as an offering to the queen of heaven so she would bless your fertility. I know, I know what you're thinking. Yes, I do know how crazy I sound sometimes with the things that I'm saying. But people do some crazy things, so I all I can do is tell you what I have found. <laughs> this isn't a one-off thing either. Um, there's quite a few things that lead to this, and I did a lot of research in different places that talk about this. A lot of pagans believe this, and I think that, um, not that we should go by what the pagans say, but it does dampen our witness to them when we're taking part in some things that aren't reflecting Christ. So, Tammuz and the Queen of Heaven are both referenced in the Bible as pagan gods. Ezekiel 8, 14-18 says, Then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was towards the north. And behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. He said to me, Do you see this, son of man? Yet you will see still greater abominations than these. 
Then he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the entrance to the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about twenty-five men with their backs to the temple of the Lord, and their faces towards the east, and they were prostrating themselves eastwards towards the sun. He said to me, Do you see this, son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they have committed here, that they have filled the land with violence and provoked me repeatedly? For behold, they are putting the twig to their nose. Therefore, I indeed will deal in wrath. My eye will have no pity on, nor will I spare. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet I will not listen to them. The visuals of the men outside of the house of the Lord with their backs to it, worshiping a false god, right next to the altar of God, is heart-wrenching. The legend goes on to have so many of the significant things that people do for Easter, much like Christmas. There's some truth to the fact that the things that we do have a pagan background. We should care about that, but that doesn't mean everything needs to be thrown out. Or else we couldn't say days of the week, month, wear a wedding ring. I mean, there's a lot of things that you couldn't do because it could have a pagan background. And, um, and we are not throwing everything out. To get into all of these things here would take forever, but I'm sure you get the point. And if you want to look into them, look into them. It's very interesting things to find out about. So what do we do with all this? What does this mean for Easter? Being that it's a legend and that the people who celebrate it for the Lord are celebrating it to worship him, being that Passover or Pashka is not the same as whatever this thing is, being that you can have two different holidays with similarities or legends that could or could not be true. First, I would say we all ought to pray about what would honor God and what wouldn't, what is neutral and where our hearts are in it, how we present it to our children and what we emphasize. I think it really matters how we worship the Lord, and um, I think it's too easy to do what we want and not necessarily think about what we ought to be doing or what he would think was um, acceptable. I would say if we feel convicted about it, you absolutely should listen to the Holy Spirit and celebrate Jesus in a way that honors him in your life. Don't go against your conscience. Remember what it is. Resurrection Day, Passover, Pashka. Remember the point of it. I love celebrating Jesus and his work on the cross and that he has risen. I have had a problem with the bunny and the eggs since before I knew any of this, simply because probably the Holy Spirit was convicting me, and I knew that it was a distraction from Christ. It was taking away from him being the central focus of the day. Like so many people out there, though, I allowed it anyway, partly for fear of what the world would say, partly because it was fun and I thought completely harmless. At least that's what it looks like from the outside. And I think in some cases, some of it is completely harmless. In other things, um, such as the Easter Bunny, I think that there's a problem with that. I think there's a huge point of why. Why do we do it? What's the point of... Um, Putting something in 
it's like a holder spot, you know, instead of putting Jesus there, we're putting Santa or an Easter bunny, and it doesn't make any good sense to do that. We have to live for an audience of one, and that's God. That means weighing what looks harmless to see if it's actually harmless. There are so many compromises that have led the Christian community in general to accept things that I don't believe are okay. I don't believe they're okay because I've watched where it has landed us. I think it's important, as some of you may know, that we all look at and evaluate what we do and how we do it according to God's word and adjust accordingly. Questions we should ask, how are we to worship God? How does he say we should worship him? What is a compromise? How many compromises are too many? Where do you draw the line? And at what point can I still say with a clear heart and conscience that I'm honoring God while I'm doing them? I am so glad we have the Holy Spirit to shape us and to guide us and to help us in our walk. I mean, we would be doomed without him. God knows that any compromise is too much. That's why over and over he said, don't do what the pagans do. Don't worship me how the, they worship their gods and don't marry them or give your children to marry them. Don't be unequally yoked with darkness. It has everything to do with honor and love and respect for the one who deserves us to care. I think when we compromise enough, it becomes a salvation issue. We should ask ourselves, are we really making Jesus the Lord of our lives? For one person, Easter might be idolatrous, and for another, a day of absolute reverence and worship. It just depends on how we are doing it and what we are doing, what's our focus, it, you know, all of the things I've been talking about. I think we really need to evaluate what our main focus is in life, in general, just all the things that we do let alone if we're saying that we're celebrating Christ or doing something to honor him or in remembrance of him. We should hold his name and his worship in the highest regard, not take it in vain and use it in a way that devalues it. If we carry the name of Christ to call ourselves Christians and then live the way the world does, aren't we at least hypocrites? I wonder what Jesus would do sometimes, the absolute honor and obedience, never compromising truth. Knowing the same God that was talked about in the Old Testament is the same God that lived on earth and is the same God that dwells in us. We can learn from the entirety of scripture what Jesus would do. If the pagans use these things as a tool for a sacrifice to a pagan deity, which as we know is demon worship, then I personally don't want anything to do with them. I don't need to look like the world. I do, however, want to continue to worship the Lord and keep him the focus of all things. And I don't want to take anything that is a harmless piece of creation and then try and act like it's evil. What if the things are just harmless? What merit do we put on an object to be good or bad if it's neutral? Bunnies are bunnies until you make them something else. I very much believe that because the Bible says teachers are to be held to a higher standard, that they will be on earth as well as in heaven. We ought to all take the mindset of what are we promoting? What are we accepting? Is it good? Is it godly? 
James 3.1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. He will judge us according to our understanding. We should all be teachable and correctable, wanting to please the Lord in all that we do. Parents, you are teachers, whether you like it or not. Your children are your first ministry. I know people who simply say, I don't want to know, but I believe that we don't have room to be willfully ignorant. If we know there could be an issue, it's up to us to search to find answers. If we feel that something could be wrong, look into it because we should know what we're doing and we should care enough to spend the time to find it. We don't want to be eating a brownie that has a little feces in it, do we? If, it, if we knew that the brownie that we were getting ready to eat had a little bit of feces in it, we wouldn't eat it. You can't take something that has a tainted badness in it, a nastiness, and then say, well, I'm just going to take the good part and not the bad. It doesn't work that way. How often do you read your Bible to know what God said and why he said it, to know how you ought to live and not what you think of a passage? How much time do you spend in your Bible to learn and not just read or find some uplifting passage? How often do you read the passage you don't feel like or are hard, the ones that have nothing to do with you? How often do you spend not putting yourself into the text that you're reading, but trying to understand in context why the text was written by the people who wrote it. Do you pray for wisdom and understanding? Are you willing to change your view if God presents you with a different one? I'm not saying listen to me because I know all the answers. I'm just saying find them. These are things that we should all wrestle with. We need to put the time and effort into finding these answers. Don't just disregard stuff because it takes effort or because you think it sounds silly, or because you like it and you don't want to be corrected. We all fall short. We all have blind spots. We all should remember to check out our hearts because they're deceitful. Check out our motives and recalibrate ourselves to the word. Iron sharpens iron. We should be talking to each other and talking about hard things. We can't just go surface deep and not talk about the hard things because they're hard or because we disagree. Disagreement is fine. We should be able to disagree, have great conversations, and walk away just as loving with the other person as we did when we came into the conversation. We take time to care for the food we put into our bodies. We should do the same with what we put into our minds and hearts, and especially our spiritual food. We should take the time to know what we are celebrating and to use our discernment to find what is truth and what is lies. I think we should be able to tell the pagan who asks why we do what we do an answer. We should have answers for things. We won't have all the answers, but at least we can have some. Plenty of people get tripped up by bad arguments, and if more Christians had answers for these things, maybe we would be able to have some real conversations that make unbelievers rethink what they believe, or at least understand that we aren't being hypocrites, that we care what we're doing. Trust me, it can happen. 
I know a lot of people and have had some strange conversations with pagans who ask me questions and ask me why I do certain things. Why do you celebrate this? Why do you put a tree up for Christmas? Why do you celebrate the Easter Bunny? You know, there's these questions get asked. You might not be getting asked them, but they're getting asked out there and the, people need answers. They need to be able to understand that uh, Christians are intelligent, that they look into things and that they want to know. They We're not burying our head in the sand too scared of the truth because the truth could shake us, right? If it's true, it's true. We should be able to look into things and um, have thought behind what we do and why we do it. We really need to use our discernment. The more we use it, the more we shape it, the more we grow it, the easier it is to use and the easier it is to not get tripped up. Isaiah 44, 9 through 20 says, Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame. For the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to make bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god. His graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. How easily man worships things other than God. How easily we can take something harmless and neutral and make it idolatry. What I really want to talk about after all this, though, the good part. What does the Bible say about the whole point of this celebration? Matthew 26, 26 through 29 says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for forgiveness of sins. 
But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So in this he establishes that we are to remember him in this way. They then went to the garden of Gethsemane to pray. Jesus was grieved and distressed, it says. He prays that the cup will pass from him because he knew the cup of God's wrath was going to be poured out on him as he took the punishment for the sins of the world. What an intensely unimaginable thing to think about. How that must have felt to him knowing what was coming and obediently giving up his own will for the Father's. His fleshly angst while he sweat blood. This is how we ought to be, the absolute acceptance of God's will over our own, no matter what it looks like. It's crazy for me to think he was betrayed by someone closest to him, someone who was said to be his disciple, who walked with him, someone he called a friend, someone who watched him firsthand perform miracles and sat and listened to the best teacher you could ever have. He was betrayed for money. How hard was Judas's heart in all of this to give Jesus over for money? Jesus was put on trial, he was questioned, he was beaten, he was mimicked, mocked, and taunted. They stripped Jesus, they put a scarlet robe on him and a crown of thorns on his head, and then they beat him as they made fun of him. If we were alive then, we could have been one of them. How many of these people came to Christ later? How many mock him now? How many people out there openly mock the Lord and can come to Christ? We need to be praying for them. They took the robe off of him and put his own clothes back on him, brought him to be crucified. They crucified him with a robber on either side, the holy, blameless one being killed like an evil sinner. Before he died, he said, it is finished. Such beautiful words right there. There's nothing that we can do. He already did it all. God paid all of our debt so that if we repent and believe, we can be made clean, clothed in his righteousness. One of the thieves next to Jesus went down mocking him. The other acknowledged him and asked Jesus to remember him. The depiction of one man saved and another man too stubborn for the truth. It says the temple veil was torn from top to bottom. That was the veil that protected people from God's holiness. Only the consecrated priests could go behind the veil, and there were a lot of rules to protect them because no sin unatoned for could enter. The veil being torn is so significant because that was the veil between us and God. That protected us from the judgment of being in the direct holy presence of God. Jesus was the atonement for the world. He is now the highest priest, the one who is our protection, our advocate, our savior, our atonement, our Lord. If you're a true born-again believer, the moment you become born again, God looks at you and sees Jesus's righteousness. No thing can we do. It's been done by the only perfect sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5:21. I just love this verse. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is just awesome, isn't it? It says, He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, 
He was perfect and spotless and blameless, never sinned once. To be sin, that is take on our sin, on our behalf, so that we, that's us, we're we, might become the righteousness of God. We're clothed in the righteousness and purified in him. It's just awesome. So after Jesus allowed death to overtake him, a rich man named Joseph came and took his body, wrapped in linen, and brought him to a tomb, laid him inside, and rolled a giant stone over the entrance. The priests and the Pharisees remembered that he said he would rise again and gave orders for the tomb to be secured. So they put guards outside and a seal on the stone. On the third day, it says Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look for the grave. Matthew 28, 2-7 says, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. Just as he said, Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So did you catch that? The women. <laughs> the women went and uh, told the disciples that he had risen. They, they were the ones that were told to. They were sent so they went and told the disciples that he had risen and they thought that the woman would, the women were crazy. The first people to share the gospel were women. After that, Jesus appeared many times to all the apostles. They touched him and talked with him and ate with him for 40 days. That's a long time. And that's just showing um, that he was, you know, not a, just a spirit. He had a body. And then he ascended before their eyes. There's so much historical evidence for the truth of Jesus, his death on the cross, and even the empty tomb. If someone really wants to know the truth, it's out there and it's knowable. You just have to be willing to accept the truth when you find it. Some things are unknowable, but there is so much that we can know. God is so amazing. He provides a way for us. This is what we ought to be focused on. This is what our children ought to be focused on and excited about. If we are teaching our children and we are excited, they're going to be excited about it. The reason for the celebration is Jesus and his amazing sacrifice. He suffered and died for us so that we may be made right with God. He rose again and sent the Holy Spirit to live in those who obey him to be a pledge, a promise of our eternal salvation. He sanctifies us and leads us, empowers us and teaches us, and so much more. So is it Easter or is it Resurrection Day? A bunny and eggs or Christ and him crucified and ris risen again? Is the focus on distractions or on our Lord and Savior? Just some questions that I think everybody needs to think about. I hope you all found this helpful. I really do love you guys, and I pray that you know the one who saved your soul, that you seek him, that you find him, that you know him, you search his word, 
You know his word, you love it, and you hold fast to it. Love you guys.